Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today I'm really excited to have with us Noah Elliott. Noah is a two-time Paralympic snowboarder who won gold and bronze on debut at Pyeongchang and then came fourth and sixth in Beijing most recently despite a, a bit of a bone issue which we'll talk about. So welcome to the podcast Noah. Thank you so much Liz. It's so good to, to be reconnecting with you and to, to be on here. Yeah it's great to have you. So Noah can you give us some of your background on yourself, your impairment and how you got into snowboarding? Absolutely. So as you said, I'm a snowboarder, and I wasn't always a snowboarder. I actually grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, far away from the mountains in the United States. Mm. And growing up, skateboarding was a sport that I found that was cheap to do and something that I also really just loved to do. And so by the time I was 10 years old, I decided that I knew I wanted to be when I grew up. I wanted to be a skateboarder. And later on, mm -hmm. that all kind of changed once I got a cancer diagnosis. And, you know, unfortunately, throughout my cancer diagnosis, I was also given an opportunity to discover the Paralympics and see snowboarding. And that's really how I got into snowboarding was seeing it on TV. And at the time I had a total knee uh, replacement and a limb salvage surgery. So they had my tibia bone and my knee replaced with titanium so that I could still have a leg. And later I ended up having to get an amputation due to um, my choice, but also because of an infection that was going on in my leg. And so I amputated mm -hmm. my leg in 2015 on January 30th. And that's kind of what pursued me. Well, ho ho hopefully the doctors amputated your leg, not you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, the doctors <laughs> amputated my leg. Um, <laughs> I didn't do that. But um, yeah, so they amputated my leg in 2015. And then that's how I ended up getting into Paralympic snowboarding. So I am a above the knee amputee. Okay. And so what classification does that have you in terms of within snowboarding itself? In para-snowboarding, um, the classification that I would be in is LL1, and I compete against other people that are also missing two joints in their legs. Mm -hmm. and, and what are the other classifications in para-snowboard? So there are also uh, an upper limb class, so people with an upper limb impairment, um, that's UL, and then the other one is LL2, and this is uh, lower limb two, so this is for like more of the least impaired uh, athletes, so somebody who might be a below the knee amputee versus an above the knee amputee. The below knees are in LL2. Uh-huh, thank you. And what events do you compete in in snowboarding? Uh, I compete in snowboard cross and snowboard bank slalom, and uh, those are the only two events Paralympics actually have for snowboarding, but they're both really two fun events. And so can you describe them a little bit more? What, do, what does each of them entail? Absolutely. So uh, snowboard cross is more like motocross. So we have different features. Uh, we race four people at a time. So four people at the top of the course starting at the same time and the gate drops. And there are different features that we have to get through in the start section and big turns and big jumps. And the first one to the top two to the end, across the finish line, uh, advance all the way until the final round because it's a bracketed event. And on the final round, the top two win. So it goes one, two, three, fourth. And so that's the placement of it, and everyone falls after that. Bank slalom yep. is actually uh, very much like slalom for skiing, but the difference is we have big turns that have been made out of snow that are uh, off the ground. So they're walls. So it's almost like a skateboarding bowl. Um, at a skate park, if anybody's ever seen those, but it's, yeah, just a big wall and a big berm. It can be anywhere from three feet to 10 feet tall, and they set gates and panels uh, throughout those in different areas. So it's a, a 
race against the clock. And just one person on the course at any one time. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And so the snowboard cross was the event that was held at the first time that the that snowboarder was in the Paralympics in Sochi, correct? Correct. Yeah. And it was so cool to see, like, obviously the the changes that the sport has made and also just watching the differences between when it first started in Sochi when I watched it and it was just one person against the clock and that's how they ran border cross and now up to the mm-hmm. day where you know we were in Korea and in Korea it was only two people at a time on the course and now going into China we were all four on a course at a time which was awesome yeah and the depth of field has also increased quite a bit hasn't it it definitely has um, and it's been really fun because we have uh, so many different people involved with it now because the exposure's been out there a little bit longer. And, you know, it's something we're always trying to build on. But it's really cool because it makes it a lot more competitive and a lot funner to have four people running at a time. Mm, indeed. And also a little bit more dangerous, yes. potentially. Yeah. <laughs> so can you, right now you're kind of recovering from from some fairly major surgery that you had soon after Beijing. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, I had a lot of different things that were really challenging me this season. Not only was it my second games, but there was a lot of things that I was really dealing with that was making it extremely difficult for me to focus on the actual snowboarding part of it because I had an injury that started uh, back in June of last summer. And during that time, I, I got an injury that was a blister on my residual limb, so my amputated leg. And I ended up dealing with that throughout the whole winter. And actually the day that I mm. won my world title in Norway and, you know, at this point I'd already qualified for the China team. I actually took my leg off and I had about a cup of blood in there and come to find out I was uh-huh. early. And next thing you know, my femur bone is actually exposed and uh, like compound fractured out of my skin. So I had oh. about an inch and a half of my femur bone sticking out of my leg, which I could see and, um, it was extremely scary and it was something that I definitely thought there's no way I'm going to China anymore. Um, this is a mm-hmm. huge injury and, you know, thankfully I've had the support from the whole team, uh, family, friends, and also the surgeons and doctors to say, you know, we feel like it's a reasonable risk for you to still compete like this if you feel like you can, um, because either way I'm going to need surgery. And so uh, that's what I did. Yeah. I got a fourth place and a sixth place in China and was just astounded to even be there and just really absorbed being at my second games. It was amazing. And uh, yeah, so now I'm seven weeks out of surgery. Uh, I just got my leg back and starting to get back to it. No more bones sticking on my leg. It looks much better. So <laughs> definitely feeling better. Let alone feeling much better and actually being able to wear your leg. Yeah. I, you know, yeah. And it's hard because, you know, I'm a single father too. So it's been challenging to be on you know, crutches as much and not being able to, you know, do stuff with her even that's, you know, like I would usually do. So. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, you can, you can look forward to all the things that are to come now. Hey. Yes. Yeah. And so can you tell us what a typical week of training might look like for you? Obviously last year was a bit disrupted and, and you weren't able to spend as much time perhaps on on your snowboard, but what would a typical week's training look like for you when you've got, you know, your your prosthetic on and and you can fully function? Yeah, you know, it, it varies from summer to winter because it's a good question because I get this question where a lot of people are curious. They're like, what do winter athletes do in the summertime? And so mm. a summer training day looks completely different from a winter training day. But if I'm 
in peak season of snowboarding, then I really focus on time on task because that is something that is I have learned is crucial to my understanding and becoming a better snowboarder is if I go out there and I say, mm-hmm. hey, I'm going to give two devoted hours to great training versus I'm going to go out for a longer period and get to the fatigue state and tire myself out. You know, at that point you become sloppy in like what you're doing. And so that creates bad muscle mm-hmm. memory. So I like to really focus on time on task. So I'll go out there with a list of things that I have or my coaches have identified as things that I need to work on. And that's how I'll approach that. So I'll get my on snow time. Obviously I'm fueling in the morning and on the hill I'm also fueling as well as after getting off the hill, immediately going to get some recovery. Um, I usually do a spin section on a bike just to kind of flush out my legs from the day of snowboarding. And then if I have video, I'll do video review as well. I don't know. I was still talking for a while and I didn't realize that you were gone. So yeah, in wintertime, you know, I really focus on time on task and that's something I've learned over the years that helps me. So when I'm actually going out on hill, I'll take a list of things that myself and my coaches have identified so that I know I can uh, work on and just focus on getting two Mm -hmm. to two and a half solid training hours of working on those things. And if I get an opportunity to get video, I will also look at that video later on. Now, my summer days look Mm -hmm. completely different because summertime, there's no snow. I do live in Colorado currently, and it's an amazing place, but winter does leave eventually. And so then we're left with the summer months. And how Mm -hmm. do I train? I grew up skateboarding, and I've learned from a young age that skateboarding is a really, really challenging uh, board sport out of all the board sports. And Mm -hmm. so uh, skateboarding actually works really well for me to cross train with in the summertime for snowboarding because when I'm skateboarding all summer, I still am using similar movements and get myself ready. So, and then also just, you know, enjoying life and uh, camping and doing things that I love to also keep my mental side happy. Yeah. Yeah. And what about strength training? Is that something that you do all year round or do you do that just at certain phases of the year? Yeah, I have found, um, you know, in the typical sport that I compete in, in border cross and bank slalom, snowboard cross more specifically, it's a very heavyweight dominant sport. And so like a lot Mm -hmm. of the people that are dominating the sport are all heavier athletes. And for me, I'm not the biggest guy. I'm not super heavy. And so I do a lot of strength training. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say that's a, that's an understatement. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it's crazy. It's like, man, these, these guys outweigh me by 60 pounds at minimal, um, on average, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's, uh, it's very challenging, but for me to still be competing at the level I am, I've realized that to, to surpass that level and to be the best me I can be, I do need to build on some muscle and be in the weight room. Mm-hmm. And, and so how often would you be in the weight room then? So I've actually done really well. And I think because of it, you know, I went and lived at the training center in Colorado Springs for a little bit, uh, the Olympic training center. And Mm -hmm. that gave me an opportunity to really dial in my routine of working out and how I needed to fuel myself during that time because they had Mm -hmm. such a good opportunity with the meal plans. And also you were there. And so you were able to give me insight on different things that I could do to also help refuel and good and fresh ways. And so um, those things have actually carried over with me over the years. And it was really awesome because mm-hmm. leading into China, um, I was the heaviest I've ever been and all muscle. So Fabulous. felt really, yeah. really good. Yeah. Awesome. And so kind of go through for us what a typical day's food intake might look like for you. Yeah. So right now my food intake in the morning is first thing I do is I wake up um, I got to wake up my daughter as well, get her ready for the school day if we're in, if we're in school season. Mm-hmm. But I always make a smoothie. And I think smoothies are just a fun way for me to 
drink something that's also tastes really good that packs a lot of calories and so a lot of times I'll put like mm-hmm. half of a banana in there and then I'll do a little bit of yogurt if I have Greek yogurt like vanilla Greek yogurt I'll put that in there and then some fruit that I have mm-hmm. frozen fruit and orange juice and that's kind of just like a starter and that's just something that gets to me yep. um, in the morning immediately and then while I'm drinking that I'm making breakfast so uh, two eggs some toast and I'm taking cliff bars and snacks with me on the road I also keep protein mm-hmm. shakes with me now and I actually have protein powder in my car and in my house so <laughs> if I'm out <laughs> and I need to have protein it's like in my car and I'm ready good yeah and so what about during the middle part of the day if you if you stop for lunch so if I stop for lunch, you know, we live in Colorado and the United States is really has a lot of different food options, but something that I love tremendously that's super easy and usually cheap and you can find them good are street tacos. So I will go mm-hmm. and get street tacos, three to four of them. And, you know, they have, you know, I usually get the chicken one. So I'll get like, it'll be like chicken, pico de gallo, you know, sometimes I'll get like the, the pineapple ones on there. And so um, they end up being like a really tasty and good for you um, food that's quick and easy to eat. Yep. Or pe- and what about dinner? Oh, yeah. Um, Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I also, peanut butter sandwiches. I have been like taking one <laughs> slice of bread and making a peanut butter sandwich and folding it and like taking three of those with me. So if all else fails, I have peanut butter sandwiches with me. But yeah, so for dinner, uh, it, it depends on the day, but I do like doing pasta because it's something that I feel like I can pack a lot of things in also that's easy to make because, you know, I have a daughter and it's just us. And so when I'm training and I have a lot going on, it's it's really something that we can like, okay, we're hungry now. Let's make something really tasty, but also make it quickly. And so pasta yeah. comes up a lot in our family. Um, so a lot of pasta noodles, onion, garlic, all the, all the good stuff, parsley, and always spicy, spicy peppers as well. <laughs> cool. I remember when you first started at the U.S. Uh, snowboard team, and that was only fairly soon before Pyeongchang. I think it was only sort of within 18 months before Pyeongchang. What do you, what do you think some of your biggest challenges and what do you think some of your biggest learnings have been from a nutrition perspective? I actually was surprised at how much I was under fueling my body for the activities that I was doing. And I didn't realize that. And I think, you know, I I had cancer and that's, you know, I had to go through chemotherapy and that's what later led to me having the disability that I live with. But the actual like time before cancer, I ate so much. And I think during the cancer treatment, I've, I've thought about this a lot. I didn't get to eat at all. I wasn't hungry. Um, at all. I was just trying mm-hmm. to, to survive. And there was not a lot of eating during that because the chemotherapy yeah. was making me so sick. And so I think the after effects of that made it really hard for me to like eat properly the way I needed to, like moving forward. And especially once I started mm-hmm. getting back to activities and it's taken me a while, but now I finally feel yeah. you know really confident that I've been nailing it. And I've seen the results because of that. Um, I've put on the muscle that I've been wanting to put on mm-hmm. and I'm still continuing that progression. But yeah, it, it's something that I, I didn't realize until I started with the team that I was under fueling. Mm, okay. And so were you heavier? I know you have kind of have to factor in the, the weight of the leg that you now don't have, but were you a bigger kid than than you are now or were you always kind of a little bit skinny and slighter? Yeah, I was definitely always like skinnier and lighter, but it's weird because 
all my family, like all my dad's family and stuff are much taller than I am. And so I think, I think I could have even like grown to be bigger if I wasn't uh, taking the impacts of chemotherapy at the time, because I just like Mm. just turned 16. But yeah, I think I probably would have been more like 5'11 and weigh a little bit more for sure. Mm. So had you started your peak growth spurt? Like had you already started going through puberty at 16 and and kind of the cancer hit right in the middle of that um you know I don't know I definitely felt like I was earlier than that but I do think you know like with Mm -hmm. the chemo like my body just went into like survival mode so I don't think like there was any opportunity for me to like be growing at that time you know it was like Mm -hmm. that was an opportunity that was definitely missed just because of the the poison that I was dealing with um but yeah right now I'm 5'8 and weigh I need to reweigh myself but last time I weighed myself with my leg off I weighed 126 so with my leg on that would be like 137 138 um, almost 140 yep okay cool and so what about when you travel with the team and you obviously you spend part of winter going around the world to world cups how do you find the travel component for you from a nutrition and also from a training perspective you know traveling around the world i think when we go with our team the training opportunities are going to be there like that's something that is a given and that's something we know that we're going to be focusing on because when we travel these places almost always besides if we're doing a training camp like in the end of our summer we're there for a competition. And so during that time, we are there to focus and train. So we know we're going to get the training, but the hardest part is the fueling aspect because we might be in the middle of Finland, like up so far up north (laughs) to where we're not familiar with the food areas. So we have to be, you know, conscious of that and try to plan out things or bring snacks and, you know, go to the local grocery store and see what we can also have to bring up with us on hill. Yeah. And so what are your travel foods that you take with you? I like to take honey stingers. They're just like cliff bars and they're local to here in Steamboat. They have these energy gummy chews. So it's like a, a fruit snack pack that I use, mm-hmm. usually take with me. And that's something that I can have on hill as well. So just like something on hill that's gummy that also gives me more carbohydrates and more energy during the day throughout training or competition. And then um, bars mm-hmm. as well, like cliff bars and, and bars like that. Like I just, I'm a big fan of protein bars and things that are easy to consume on the move. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And so do you think that your amputation, other than obviously the last 12 months that have been a bit horrendous in terms of the the bone injury, do you think you, you're restricted by that in any way, like in terms of, you know, you feel as though that creates an extra layer of complexity that you have to then, you have to manage on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I mean, it definitely does because even if I fly or if I consume enough stuff or don't consume stuff, my leg is going to change. And, you know, I noticed that whenever I was flying to Canada, one of the last times that I went, my leg actually swelled up and it made it to the point where I wasn't able to put my leg on for a little bit once we first arrived Mm -hmm. in Canada. And when I did finally get to put it on, it was just super tight. And I think the other thing is too, I realized that whenever I put on weight and I'm working out, my leg will fit great when I have it fit that way. But if I, as soon as I start to deviate from that and I start to lose muscle, my leg fit changes completely and now it's not fitting right. And so it's really day to day, it changes. And so I've learned that if I can consistently keep a, a diet going to where I'm consistently snacking throughout the day and also having my three big meals, then 
my leg and my overall body, like I just feel better completely. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, I think that's a really interesting point that, that a lot of people probably don't think about as much in terms of just, you know, the, the energy that you need to consume for your training as well as keeping your weight as stable as possible uh, in order for your fit of, of your prosthesis is, is something that you have to think about, const, you know, almost constantly in terms of you, you have to be prepared and you have to always make sure that you've got enough food with you. Correct? Correct. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Noah, have you got any recommendations for, say, younger athletes who may be looking to come into snowboard? How, how do you get into para-snowboard? You know, snowboarding, we've, you know, para-snowboarding is, the Paralympics in general, I would say, is something that has been growing with exposure over the years, but we're not quite mm-hmm. at the level that the Olympics are yet. And I'm not sure if we'll be there you know, in the next couple of years. And so I think it's really important for people in our sport to advocate for our sport and how to get into it. And that's something that I think everybody mm-hmm. needs to take on as an, as an athlete in our sport is to help do. But if people are looking and interested to get into it, everyone that I know in our sport is super helpful and open to talking to anybody about getting into our sport and getting involved in it. So mm-hmm. I would say reach out to somebody through social media you can also watch a lot of our videos on YouTube now. Um, so we have content out there as mm-hmm. you can see and be able to get involved, you know, reach out. People can steer you in the right direction. There's a couple training facilities throughout the U.S. that a lot of people utilize here. So you can go and talk to them and get uh, started up with training. Mm-hmm. And would you give them any any advice just in terms of you know things that they might need to think about when getting ready to try and train for snowboarding? Uh, yeah, I would say be ready to challenge yourself and be ready to be frustrated with the different things because it's it's challenging when you first start snowboarding and you have a prosthetic setup that you, you're trying to learn how to dial in and to figure out. And it's not like I have two legs I can just like put my snowboard on and figure out how mm-hmm. the snowboard works and what I need to do to make it work. It's now how is my leg need to be set up so that I can feel comfortable to then understand how I can do these things to make it work. Mm -hmm. I think just be open and ready to what's going to come your way and taking that leap of faith and doing it. Mm -hmm. So do you have a separate prosthetic for your board compared to your day-to-day life? I do. I have a completely different setup for snowboarding than I do for walking. And the main difference is the Mm -hmm. knee component. Because the knee that I have for walking is completely different than the knee that I need for snowboarding. Uh, The one I have for walking is more of a hinge. So when I walk, it hinges and it swings back and forth versus my snowboarding leg is actually a mountain bike shock. So it's a fox shock that gives me more of the in-between flow movement from a squatting position up to a standing position. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, because I think that's quite useful to kind of describe because I don't think everyone realizes that actually it's a completely different functionality that you need out of that prosthetic when you're snowboarding versus when you're walking. Yes. Cool. And so what about any recommendations that you have for potentially coaches or practitioners, whether they're sports dietitians, sports psychologists, or, you know, sports medicine, physical therapies, any recommendations that you have for them when they're starting to work with para-athletes? 
Uh, yeah, you know, I would say be open to what they might be working with because there's a lot of different things that go into, you know, not only a disability, but also the fueling factor of it. Like when you're fueling for any sport that anyone's doing without a disability, you're looking at so many different things. But when you add in a factor of a disability and you're looking at maybe this person who's running might exert more energy than somebody who's running with two legs because this person's missing half their leg. So maybe they actually need to fuel more calories or have more electrolytes so that they're more hydrated so that when they're going into this, that they're prepared and ready. Yep. Yep. Cool. And do you feel as though your coach, so your coach at the moment, they've coached able-bodied athletes versus para-athletes. What do you think their biggest learnings have been when trying to transition to coaching para-athletes? I think they're, yeah, that's a good question. I actually, I think they've learned a lot about how to think outside the box more so than they normally would when it comes to the sports that we do. Mm-hmm. I think they have had to really test themselves and figuring out the mechanics of it more or less and also how it's going to work and how they can, if a foot feels low or if a foot's different, how can they level it out with the other normal foot mm-hmm. or the initiation of a snowboard and a turn is completely different because my front foot's a prosthetic. So what other body parts have to move to compensate to make mm-hmm. the same action happen. Mm-hmm. And so I think they've been really creative and had to learn a lot about how to stay creative with our sports. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Fantastic. Well, Noah, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I know you've got a, a busy schedule, uh, even though it's it's the it's the summer months coming up and, and you've got a little bit more freedom. But I just want to finish with what's your favorite food? My favorite food? Um, I would have to say tacos. I mean, they're just, they, they never fail. They're so good. They're so good. <laughs> And we, we have to remind people who maybe don't come from the U.S. in the areas that have good street tacos, describe a good street taco because if you were in Australia and you went for a taco, you'd get to something that probably doesn't have much in the way of veggies and it has a lot of cheese on it. So okay. give us a description. <laughs> yeah, so uh, here, here, here it goes. So um, street tacos in America, I'm talking like soft shell, so soft tortilla, always soft. Mm-hmm. And on there, you're going to have like some sort of marinated chicken, pork, uh, some sort of protein on there, beef. And you're also going to have pico de gallo, which is like a mix of tomatoes and onions and like all these different vegetables that are amazing. Mm-hmm. Super good on top of there with cilantro, as well as sometimes guacamole, which is one of my favorite things made out of avocados. Mm-hmm. And never greasy, you know, like a good street taco is usually not greasy. And so it's just a fresh, healthy, like, I mean, and I want tacos talking about I, did, I, <laughs> I was going to say, I can tell you're salivating from... Yeah, <laughs> I, think, I think I need some tacos. <laughs> well, let's not hold you back from your street tacos. Thank you so much, Noah, for your time. I really appreciate it. And we wish you all the best for the upcoming season and for hopefully going on to Milan Cortino. Yes. Thank you so much, and uh, it was so good to catch up with you again and to to be on here. So thank you for having me. I think it's really interesting how Noah explains that when he was going through his chemotherapy, he really didn't have 
much of an appetite. And so he's had to work really hard on building up his food intake in order to be able to sustain his training load and gain muscle mass. And it's something that he has to think about pretty consistently throughout every day in order to maintain that. So I think, you know, that discipline and that understanding of really what your full needs are is super important as an athlete, especially in order to get to the top. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please leave us a message if you have any feedback or any recommendations on someone you'd like to hear from and feel free to share it with your social media. I hope you join us next time when we talk to Jackie Scaramella, who is a sports dietitian with a number of the US Paralympic programs.